were singing that last song, uh, Lord brought to my mind Philippians uh, 1.20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I may not be put to shame in anything, but that Christ may now, even as always, be exalted in my body. And I was reminded of something that I heard yesterday that convicted me, and this person was talking about saying that, you know, I was really good with God being glorified if I was glorified as well. But I really had a problem with God being glorified, or I realized I was struggling that God would be glorified even if I was kind of cast to the wayside. If my goals and dreams and ambitions weren't reached and achieved like I wanted them to, then I, I realized that that was the struggle that was in my heart that this person shared. And I realized that that's true for me too sometimes. I'm really good with God being glorified if, if I get glorified too. But do I really want God to be glorified? And then because Paul goes on to say, whether in life or in death. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are a good, good father. That's who you are. And I just sometimes know that you're all that I need. I just pray, dear Father, that you would help me to get to know you well enough for you to be all that I want. I pray that you would work in our hearts and our souls and our minds and that you would have all of us, our lips and our eyes and our feet and our hands, all for you, Lord, all for you. Take us into your word and let us worship you in spirit and in truth for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, I was traveling along, and I remember seeing in April a combine going through the field harvesting corn. And I thought, that is really odd. But a similar thing happened in the spring of 2019, there were some farmers who were, in April, harvesting the crop that should have been harvested the previous fall, and there's a reason for it. Extenuating circumstances brought about the delay of the harvest or the, the hampering of that harvest. Springs in, uh, spring rains, torrential rains in the previous spring, had resulted in pushing back the planting so that the crop maturation took longer. Then in the fall, there were rains that made it muddy and impossible to get in, and then snow came uh, very early, and so this, the, the rains had saturated and the snow insulated the, the muddy ground underneath so that there was no frozen ground on which to drive these heavy machines to harvest the crops. And I got to thinking about that, that there are circumstances that physical and climatological circumstances, weather circumstances that hamper the harvest in the same way there are situations that hamper the spiritual harvest. But those situations, those extenuating circumstances are usually latent in the souls of those of us who know Jesus as Savior. There are certain things in our hearts that keep us from engaging and, in effect, hamper the harvest of souls. And we've just finished the series and saw how God has called us as his people to do good works so that we can build goodwill to provide a platform for us to share good news. And now we are going to take a dive into this book of Jonah that is related to this whole idea of advancing the gospel. And what we're going to see in the, in the book of Jonah is that he's, God is sovereignly control over, has control over not only the, the world in which we live, the physical circumstances, but over the people, and he has a compassion for everyone, not just those that we hang out with. 
not just those who we're comfortable with, not even just those people we like, but God really does have a heart for the lost. And we're going to see his commitment for his people to share his message of mercy with the lost everywhere in the world. And we're going to see that God really doesn't take too kindly to our standing in the way. He confronts our reluctance. He confronts our tendencies to hamper his harvest. And so I invite you to turn, if you will, in your Bibles or uh, find it on your device, your phone, or underneath the seat in front of you, there's a Bible, Jonah chapter 1. And I'm going to read through Jonah chapter 1 to set the stage for us to unpack three facts about Jonah that find in this text that reveal God's commitment to confront our rebellion against Advancing the message or declaring the message of salvation to a lost world. Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on, what, on whose account has this calamity struck? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea has become increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, Do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And then the men feared the Lord greatly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights." Now, it's a story that many of you have heard before. But what I see in the text, and there, there, there are three facts, or actually three marks of, of those who are rebelling, or three events that occur in the life of those who resist sharing the message of the gospel. And the first one is, and I, in your outline, it says, we reject God's call to share his word with the world, or if we reject God's call to share his word with the world. I'm not saying that's true of you. It could be. But if that's true in any way, shape, or form, then we see some principles that are teased out for us. First of all, let's consider two parts about this rejection. What is the reason for the rejection? And the reason for a rebellion, at least the rebellion that we see in Jonah's life, is that we resent his compassion. That's God's compassion. Jonah was a prophet who lived near Nineveh, I'm sorry, Nazareth, uh, which is in the promised land, in the holy land, you know, he lived near Nazareth, in the Middle East, uh, near, not too far from Jerusalem, okay, north, up in Galilee, 
So he, he lived there, and he was called to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was 500 miles east, an Assyrian city. And that's what he was called to do. That was his message. But as God's chosen people, the people of Israel kind of liked their privileged position as God's chosen people. They were content with their special place in God's redemptive plan. And Jonah's story reinforces and reminds us that God's redemptive plan is not just for the people of Israel. It's for all humanity. And the broader focus was a difficult pill for Jonah to swallow. The title of our series is What's Eating Jonah? Well, the first thing we see that was eating Jonah was the thought that these Assyrians would actually have a chance to repent. Uh-uh. That had to be a mistake. The Bible does tell us in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that, the, that the, God's love is for the Jew first, but also for the Gentiles. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Jonah wasn't so sure. That was the messenger. Now we see the message. Verse 2, it says, Arise and go to Nineveh. Arise, stand up, Jonah. You're sitting down, get up and do something. Nineveh was a major city. It was a major city and it was a big city and it included all the surrounding suburbs. It was a major. Great means both in size and significance. And when I thought about this, I thought, you know, New York City is a great city. Chicago is a great city. Des Moines is a great city. These are cities of commerce, of finance, of trade, of exports and imports and all sorts of business. And his message was cry against it. He said, well, we'll cry against it. It's kind of weird language maybe, but he's, the, the word cry against it denotes an enunciation of a specific message of judgment. Judgment is coming. Some of you are aware of what's been happening in the social media with this guy named Carson King. Carson King uh, had this sign that he held up at the Cyhawk football game. Uh, and, I, you know, it's not so much important about what the sign was, but he was trying to raise some money. And then a bunch of money started coming in, and he realized, I don't want this money. I'm going to give this money to the Stead Family Hospital in Iowa City, which was, you know, what a, what a, what a neat thing. Because Carson King is a Cyclone fan. But he wanted to donate the money to the Stead Family Hospital, which is like, you know, overlooks Kinnick Stadium in Iowa City. And he received a message because evidently in his younger years he'd made some tweets or sent out some uh, Instagram or some messages on social media that were not so endearing to certain people. And so the, the reporter at the Des Moines Register excoriated him for that and one of his major sponsors dropped him like a lead balloon. He got a message, a specific enunciation of judgment. The money's being cut off to you. Now, they fulfilled their pledge to him. But this is what Jonah had a message of judgment. And why did this message of judgment come? It says in the text, because the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. God was aware of the wickedness of what was going on in Nineveh. Nineveh is in Assyria, and the Assyrians were notoriously immoral, notoriously cruel, notoriously idolatrous. They were a wicked people, and this wickedness had come up before them, and you can see it. If you read the book of Nahum, this is all about the, their sin. Jonah understood that a proclamation of judgment that was coming was also an invitation to repent. You see, God doesn't waste his time warning people unless he's offering them a chance to repent. Otherwise, boom, you're done. If he just wanted to squish us like bugs, he would just squish us like bugs. But no, he graciously offers us a warning. There's a danger. There's something coming. You change your heart and be blessed by God. Hasn't been too long ago since there was a drone strike on Saudi Arabian oil fields, uh, refineries. And the United States' response to that was to issue a statement that all options are on the table in dealing with whoever's responsible. 
It was a warning of judgment, a specific enunciation of judgment intended to bring about a change in the behavior of the people who are responsible. This is what Jonah is giving. Now, Jonah's problem, I don't think, was with the message. I mean, Jonah was like fine with God's mercy. He had been one who had been a recipient of God's mercy, but he was troubled by the recipients of the message. The Assyrians were the sworn enemies of the Israelites, and if some of them repented because Jonah proclaimed to them the message of God's mercy, it could not bode well for the Israelites because some of them, they might even begin to prosper, and then they could oppress the Israelites even more. He wasn't really good on that in his mind. See, the people of Israel weren't primarily in the Old Testament missionaries. No, that wasn't their primary calling, was to be an active missionary work. But Jonah serves as an example to us, and even to them, by expressing God's compassionate concern for everybody. That's the message of Jonah. He's supposed to express God's concern, his love, his heart for all people. Now, what Jonah and the Israelites in the Old Testament were to, to hint at and to indicate, and through all, I mean, it begins in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But that wasn't their primary role. But what was their kind of intended effort to extend God's compassion to everybody has become the New Testament believers' calling and responsibility. We are called to carry that message directly to everyone. And we see it. Matthew chapter 28. Acts chapter 1, we looked at it this morning in the first service and in John chapter 17. We have been sent out. We are sent ones to proclaim this message of salvation. This message that, that now, that's not the message of Jonah. Jonah was to proclaim God's compassion as they looked forward to the work of Christ. We proclaim God's compassion towards the lost people as we look back on the cross of Christ. That we're messed up people. That we deserve God's judgment. That God in his infinite love and mercy provided a, a way of escape through the person and the work of Jesus. So that if we put our trust or our faith in Jesus' death in our place as the one who suffered and died, the death we deserve to suffer and die, and trust in him and surrender our lives to him, we will be saved. That's the message we're supposed to carry. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the question that comes to my mind as I read this first chapter of Jonah, the question I want to ask you is, are there people, are there individuals, are there groups of people in our lives that we would really have a problem with sharing the message of good news? That we really, if we're really honest in our heart, we really don't want them to be in. We kind of want them out. We want them excluded. I read an article by uh, Marilyn Sinek. She's a communications specialist with the Nebraska Family Alliance. And she was uh, in a coffee shop that she frequents. And the Nebraska uh, Family Alliance is a, a pro-life, pro-family. And they do a lot of lobbying efforts uh, that were offensive towards one of the baristas in this coffee shop. And the barista literally berated and cussed out and demanded that this person who represented a, an opposite perspective leave. Get out of here. You're not welcomed here. Your business is not, well, you don't want you here. Leave. With a few expletives uh, thrown in there for emphasis. Now, if Marilyn Sinek... I don't know what her position is with the Lord. I don't know where she is. Would she want to really see that barista receive the compassionate forgiveness of Jesus? Or would there be a part of her who wanted to say, hope she gets what she has coming? Well, that's where Jonah was. And I wonder if in our lives, would, would we welcome the thought that God had called us to share the gospel with jihadists? Would we welcome the thought that God would be willing to use us to introduce Jesus and show love and do good works and build goodwill and share good news with Hindu extremists? 
pro-choice advocates. People from the opposite political party that we affiliate with. Now, don't think of the party. Think of the people. Think of people in in an opposite political party than, than you are, or if you're an independent, just one of them that you don't like. Do we really want those people to know Christ? Do we really want the people who are on the cutting edge of the moral revolution that are challenging the very foundational truths of the Bible and what the Bible says about who we are created in the image of God, male and female created them, and do we want those people to be welcomed? That's what Marilyn Sinek was fighting against. Or would we, is there a part of us that just, you know, I don't know. What about your obnoxious neighbor? Your hostile boss, those bullying classmates at school. What about the cantankerous people in our family who don't know Jesus? We kind of just say, well, they just let them sit and soak. Would we prefer? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of crass and cold to think about it, but sometimes I wonder. In fact, I would surmise that even if we don't feel that way, we act that way sometimes. That we don't really want them. I have an antagonistic neighbor. I used to have a, I had a friend of mine. He said, man, you can pray for me. He says, I got this neighbor and they got this dog and they bring this dog over and it does its business in our yard every day. We don't have a dog. We don't want to walk through the yard with their neighbor's business, dog's business in our yard, but they do it all the time and they never clean it up. And I'm trying to win, the, I'm trying to build a, a you know, relationship, do good works, build goodwill, share good news, but I don't like stepping in dog do. How do we win these people for Jesus? Or do we care? See, I remember Vanessa. Um, Vanessa came to Christ out of a really, really rough background. And she had been in drugs and alcohol and abusive situation. And about six months after Vanessa came to Christ, she, she came to me and she says, you know, she says, Pastor, she says, I know God's telling me to do something. And it's just going to really be hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive 500 miles and I'm going to talk to this person in my family and I'm going to tell them that I forgive them for everything that they've done and I'm, gonna, I'm praying that I'm going to have a chance to share with them the, that I found a new life in Jesus. She was going to travel 500 miles to share with someone who had physically abused her as a child and share with her, them that she was forgiving them and that it was only because of Christ and she was going to share Christ with them. Vanessa was willing to go 500 miles and I wonder, am I willing to go 500 feet to visit my neighbor, to talk to my coworker, to talk to a person from a different ethnicity or religious background that I'm just kind of feel weird about. It's interesting, I just heard this week that one of the greatest things that, uh, uh, struggles that the people from uh, the Muslims feel is that they, they fear us and we fear them. And so when are we going to cross the bridge, you know? We need to step out in faith and so that, that was it. So you, you see the reason. Now look at the root of our rebellion. I just want to say, I don't want to be at Jonah. You know, I don't want to resent God's compassion on the lost. And I don't want us to be that people either as Creekside Church. The root of our rebellion is to run from his command. You know, Jonah's the original Scooby-Doo. Let's get out of here. You know, he's wanting to leave. Uh, let's get out of here. No. So the text says, Jonah, rise up and go to Nineveh. And you notice what it says, that he rose up and he headed to Tarshish. Nineveh is 500 miles east of Nazareth. Tarshish is 2,000 miles west across the Mediterranean Sea in southern Spain. <laughs> he was running. And the idea of flee is to, idea is to hurry in an attempt to escape an enemy. Okay, so when it says that he, he was fleeing, he was trying to escape 
an enemy. Now, really, he, he really didn't see God as his enemy, and I'm going to make a case that he didn't really, when he was fleeing from the presence of God, he wasn't stupid enough to think that he could escape the all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of God. He just wanted to run from where God was working because he didn't like God's work there. As a six-year-old, I think I was six or seven, so I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't know. I was young, okay? Um, before second grade, okay, however old I was before second grade. I'm so old now I can't remember, but it was six or seven. And uh, we had some friends visiting from out of town. And there was a woods, kind of like you know, if you look out to the east here, you see the woods. There was kind of a woods around our house. And so we went out with our friends into the woods. And our immediate neighbor kids decided to ambush us. Now, I mean literally. They had BB guns and axes, and they were shooting the BB guns at us, and they were chasing us with the axes, swinging them at our heads. Yeah, literally. We were running, wild-eyed and terrified, to get to my parents' home, and we made it without any bullets or uh, any cuts or bruises, just panting heavily. We were fleeing from the enemy. Jonah was fleeing. He made a run for the border, but not Taco Bell. He made a run for the Spanish border, and he was out to get away from it. And I told you that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Rather than, he, he refused to join God's work. He just didn't want to do God's work in Nineveh. And I, I think that we can do similarly to Jonah. Resenting and then running from God's command. You see, we make excuses. Well, you know, I'm not really an evangelist. I don't have that gift. No, but you have that calling. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. Mark chapter 20, or is it Mark? Luke, Luke 24, 44. You are my witnesses. John 17, verses 17 through 20. You, we are sent out. We are sent to proclaim it. John 20, 21, so send I you, Jesus says. We are sent. We're, we don't have that, that, that luxury. We make excuses. I'm not an evangelist. Um, you know, I really don't, you know, you know, in my work, I really don't have much contact with unbelievers. <laughs> I think that's not true for most of you. Because in your work, you are surrounded by unbelievers. I just don't know what to say. So I don't say anything. You know, because I wouldn't want to do damage to the cause of Christ. Do good works. Build goodwill. Share good news. Just be nice. That's a start. Act Christianly. Like don't lie, steal, and cheat. For the company, that's a start. My friend, Quentin Steve, pastor of Valley Church, he says that uh, love will find a way, indifference will find an excuse. I think there's truth to that. Indifference will find an excuse. And I... I'm joining you. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to all of us because I do too. I mentioned in the first service, I found an excuse to avoid two opportunities to open a little deeper door to the gospel uh, this week as two people came in. You know, I've been praying. It's, it struck me after the service. I said, I've been praying that God would give me opportunities. Then he gives me opportunities and I act like, duh, they're not opportunities. Faith expressing itself in love. It would have required faith to express love to those people. I chose cowardice. And I'm not proud of it. I had another opportunity where I didn't choose cowardice, but I chose faith and, and, and had a chance to, to talk to somebody uh, a week and a half ago, and it was a, a, a very encouraging conversation. I have a friend of mine who challenged a, another man to go on a short-term mission trip. And the man rep replied to him, and he says, you know, I really, I just don't have a heart for those people. My friend, is he's kind of like a no-nonsense, just kind of like, he says, you know, I'm pretty sure God does. I'm pretty sure God does have a heart for those people. So what's your problem? Do you think God has a heart for 
are family members who don't know Jesus. And some of you prayed for me last Monday, and I, I, didn't, I had a lot of good conversations. I had wished I had been able to go deeper with some of them, but uh, several of those family members are actually believers that uh, I, I've just made recent contact with. I thank you for your prayers. Continue to pray for me that I'll be able to chance to share. One little side note is that my uncle, my aunt, passed away. His husband, her husband, her husband, called and talked to my mom. And he, she's, he said this, he said, because my mom and dad, bless her heart, they've been taking opportunities. And family are the hardest people to share with. They're just the hardest people to share with. He called my mom, and you know what he said? He says, Dixie, I don't want to go to hell. Talk about setup. Whew, lob it up there. Whew. It's a softball. My mom shared the gospel with him, and, and, and he prayed to receive Christ. And I find out from his daughter that's not the first time he's struggling with some um, uh, lack of eternal security and those issues. But there it is. Mom was ready. And the question is, are we ready? Uh, Jonah wasn't ready. We make these excuses, and then we escape by running. Well, we get too busy. I don't have time. I don't have time to share Jesus. That was my excuse this week. I was running too busy. We get busy with softball and hobbies and busyness and shopping and uh, media, social media and all this stuff. So we're, or we get busy with doing spiritual stuff. I'm too busy praying. I'm too busy giving. I'm too busy serving. I don't have time to talk to people about Jesus because that's what I'm really here for. We run from it. Or we refuse to get trained up in it. On October 13th, we're going to at least have part one of some evangelism training. It's not going to be rocket science, but it's going to be uh, the, the best we can put together in, in that short amount of time. So if you want to join us on uh, October 13th, right after this uh, first service or second service, we'd be glad to have you join us. And just let us know. You can email, or email Megan or let me know. We'd love to have you join us. We're just going to talk about how we can share Jesus with people and what do we need to do to be equipped to do that. Better equipped to do that so that we're not scared out of our wits. So the first fact is that we, 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 we kind of refuse God's compassion. We reject his compassion on the lost. Secondly, we see that we receive God's confrontation. When we don't step up, God confronts us. What's interesting is you know, we're not responsible to bring people to Christ. But we are responsible to bring Christ to people. That's our calling. We have not been called to bring people to Christ. You're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's God who opens the eyes of the unbelieving. All we do is bring Christ to people through our good works, our goodwill, and our good news. We bring it. But if we don't, and we're reluctant, God sometimes will confront our rebellion. And uh, two ways that God confronts our rebellion. First of all, there's confrontation through or from circumstances. From our circumstances. And that's what we see happening here. Notice this, that there was a great wind and a great storm. It was a great thing. I mean, they, they were like, the, they thought the ship was going to break up. You know when the sailors are scared, it's bad. Jonah was too naive. He, well, I don't know. This must be how it is to travel on a ship, you know. I guess. Sound asleep in the bottom of the boat? You know what it reminds me of? Jesus. Only Jesus was sound asleep because he was at rest with God. I don't know why or how reason for Jonah being asleep. And you know what? The end of the story comes out the same. God calms the storm. And then when Jesus did it, the disciples go, whoa, who is this guy? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Read the end of this story, same thing. Whoa, they're extremely frightened. Because the sea had its own God. The polytheism of, the, of these people was that the, the sea was its own thing. Anyhow, I get ahead of myself. The confrontation from the circumstances, it's attested by the fact that the severity, that they, 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 were, they were afraid, they prayed. These, these hardened sailors are praying. That gives you a clue, you know. No atheists in foxholes, you heard that before? Well, there, uh, evidently there's no atheists on a sinking ship. And then they threw stuff overboard because they wanted the ship to be lighter so they could control where it went. And Jonah's sleeping, and the captain is, he's, he's searching for Jonah because 
Why was he searching for Jonah? Because they needed all, now get this, gods on deck. They're polytheists. So they were going to appeal to and try to appease as many gods as they could, hoping that they'd hit the right one. And so he seeks out Jonah. And Jonah knew the storm was his fault. You read verse 12, you read ahead, and we read it. I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Echoes of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplined the children of Israel as they wandered around 40 years in the wilderness because of their own rebellion. God disciplined some people in 1 Corinthians 11 who were making a mockery of the Lord's table. God, I think, disciplines us. Sometimes if you read James chapter 5, there's a hint that there's discipline as a result of sin that is the reason for the illness that you pray and ask that the Lord will forgive your sins and heal us from our sickness. That's not a mandate. That's not a hard and fast rule. It doesn't mean every time you're sick it's that you sin. I'm not saying that at all. Don't hear me saying weird stuff. I don't think that's what the text is saying. But I'm saying that we at least should consider the possibility. Is my illness a result of my rebellion? God's just trying to get my attention. He does that, you know. That's what he did with Jonah. He does that in our lives. I have a friend of mine who went on a mission trip, short-term mission trip, and he spent the whole time on his back or in the bathroom. And God was getting his attention. You are the dependent one, and I am the magnificent one. I don't really need you. I mean, God kind of communicates. This was his conclusion of what God was communicating. I'm in charge. You're not. I don't need you. Just rest in that and be cool. It wasn't very fun, but he learned the lesson. Then we see that confrontation comes from others. Now, the, the circumstances in this case was the sea, the Others, in this case, are the sailors, but God uses the discipline that sometimes, you know, isn't it interesting and, and sad sometimes, because our sin can get other people caught up in the discipline that we receive. We see that in the Old Testament with David and Bathsheba. Their, their child, an illegitimate child, died. And you don't think Bathsheba was in mourning, I'm not sure she stopped mourning after the baby died. I think she probably continued in mourning. But Nathan was the one who confronted that sin. Joab, he confronts David when David wants to number the people. He says, what are you doing? Why would you do this? God brings people into our lives to confront us and to turn us away from our sin. Sometimes he uses animals, like a donkey. With Balaam, you know. But he uses people in our lives. There was a, a, a gal that I was counseling at one time. She was in an abusive situation. And God tried to use her to intervene in her husband's life and get his attention. Didn't work, unfortunately. But God uses people in our lives. And we shouldn't be averse to listening to them. And so... The sailors knew that something was wrong and knew somebody was to blame. And so if you look at the text in verses 9 and 10, it says, and, and he, uh, they ask him, tell us who you are and, and, and what's going on. We're trying to find out. And they found out in verse 7 that they cast lots and it was Jonah to blame, but they didn't know why. And so they asked him and he told him, he says, well, because I'm the God, I, I worship and follow the God of heaven, the supreme and sovereign God. And this God is the one who made the, he the, the sea and the dry land. He's not the God who is the God of the sea or the God of the dry land. He's not Baal. He's not Poseidon. He is God Almighty. Oh boy. Now you've got, you know, this is my, you know, my translation of how could you do this is, what have you done? You ticked off the most supreme God. Some of you have seen The Hobbit. And Bilbo Baggins is in the cave. And he awakens smog. Some of you haven't seen it, and that's okay. Some of you have seen The Avengers. And when the Hulk is angered, he becomes enraged. That's what they envision. 
We are experiencing the wrath of Almighty God. And what have you done? And why have you done this? We need help. They're frightened. How could you? Immediately they want to know, okay, it's interesting to me. In verse 11 he says, so they said to him, what, do, what should we do? Because they had no experience with Jonah's God. They knew about their own gods and how you appease them. But we don't know about this God. This is a bigger thing than we know. So what do we have to do? And he tells them, and that leads into the, the third fact, or the third mark, and that is we reap God's correction. Just throw me into the sea. <laughs> there are three ways that God demonstrates in these ensuing verses the futility of or the foolishness of resisting his will. And the first one is self-reliance. It's futile. And we see this because what do the sailors do when they hear that they're supposed to throw Jonah into the ocean? They don't throw Jonah into the sea, I should say. Sea, okay. Why not? Well, we get some hints if you read verse 12. It says, and, and they said to him, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for, for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come. And then if you look down in verse 14, it says, then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. You see, they were afraid that if they threw him into the sea, they would be guilty of murder, and if they were guilty of murder in the face of a, the God who was in charge of everything, you know, they didn't stand a chance. So they said, hey, we got a better plan. Just row harder. So they're just rowing, rowing, rowing. That's what the text says. I'm not making this up. Okay, so they, they were rowing really hard. And the harder they rowed, the greater the storm became. Folks, it is futile to run from God. When God lays it out, I mean... God will either mercifully, well, he'll do it mercifully, but it may be that he'll, he'll do it softly, but at some point, he will do it. He'll stop us dead in our tracks when we're running in disobedience against him. We may not even know it. We may not even see it, but he will incapacitate us. He will debilitate us. He will stop us somehow from rebelling and running, or he may just take us out if we're doing too much damage. And take us home early. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians 11. Again, I'm not trying to make this stuff up. Okay, And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to say God gets our attention. And I think he's knocking on our door and binging on us uh, more often than we think. I think he does that for me and I just don't hear it. And I need to be sensitive to it. But that's what he did, I think. And so it's vain to fight against God. Then there's the submission we see which is profitable. Because eventually they threw Jonah into the sea, verses four, verse 14 through 16. They prayed to God and they said, please don't hold this against us. And then they threw him into the sea in, in verse 15. Now this was Jonah's obedience too, because he knew what the solution was, right? So he was willingly compliant and he didn't just sit on his hand, well, I don't know, it's probably that guy, you know. No, he had felt the conviction of the Spirit of God and knew that he was the one at charge. Can you imagine that? I've been on the ocean, and I've never been on, in a storm on the ocean, but I'm telling you, the, the ocean is scary when it's stirred up. I mean, I don't like being on a lake when there's white caps. And he says, throw me in. So they threw him in, and he, their obedience and his obedience brought about deliverance. We see it in verse 16. Or verse, the end of verse, end of verse 15. So they picked him up and they threw him, and the sea stopped its raging. That was synonymous with fear. And they knew the power of God, and it caused them to fear God more than the sea. It brought reverence. That's verse 17, 16. In verse 16, they, they, stopped, they, feared, they feared God. Now, that doesn't mean they got converted. I don't, I don't think that we're saying that they came to uh, believe in the God of, of uh, the Israelites solely. No, but they had a great reverence for God. Some of us got a chance to hear Lee Strobel share a little bit of his testimony. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He was an avowed atheist, and he came to faith in Christ. Some of you have seen the movie, The Case for Christ. He shared this story about somebody whose courage 
as a Christian, there was a gang member who uh, had, had committed a crime, a lot of crimes, and, but he was being pursued for one crime, and he, then he became a Christian. And he, he, he felt convicted that he needed to go back and face the justice for the crime that he'd committed. And Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter in the courtroom and couldn't believe what he was seeing, that this guy was coming back and confessing, yeah, I did it, I'm, I know I deserve it, and I have a, a wife and a child, but I'm willing to pay the price because that's what God would want me to do. Now, that man's obedience, after he'd become a Christian, wasn't what converted Lee Strobel. But what it did do is awaken Lee Strobel to the reality of God and Jesus Christ. That's what Jonah did for the sailors, I think. His obedience and God's response. They knew that this God was bigger and more powerful and greater than anything they'd ever seen. He was the one who was in control. They didn't believe in him yet, but they were awakened and stirred. Isn't that what God wants us to do in our obedience? It's through our obedience, courageous obedience, is to awaken within other people an awareness of the reality of the God we serve. We say that we serve him, but if we don't demonstrate our faith in a way that is tangibly expressible, then people don't see it and they don't care. They don't think we're any different than them. It's not true. And then we see that being sidelined is merciful. You see what happened to Jonah? Verse 17, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more because in the Hebrew text, verse 17 goes with chapter 2. Okay? It's all about his deliverance. But he's in the belly of a fish. God mercifully put him in the belly of a fish rather than letting him die. God's gracious treatment of Jonah's rebellion by preserving him in the belly of the fish is an example of his mercy that's intended to motivate Jonah to have compassion and want to share that message, that same compassion with the wicked Ninevites. He's acted stupidly and rebelled against God, so he received mercy. Why would he not want that for them? And you know, I'm convicted because do we really grasp the mercy of God? And We celebrate it, we sing it, we talk about it, but if it really gripped our, gripped our heart, wouldn't we want that for everyone, even the most despised people. That's what distinguishes us from other religious systems. We don't want them to go to hell. They are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy, and we want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ so that they can be delivered from their pain. Jonah is a case study in the futility of resisting God, particularly when it comes to sharing the good news of, of, of God, His mercy and His love. I heard a disturbing thing, a statistic at the Good for All conference that some of us were at this past week, of churched people, and again, I haven't verified the statistics, so I, you can take this for what it's worth, and I would say statistics are to be taken not hard and fast because, you know, how big was the sample, how cross was the sample. I took statistics in college. You know, you can, you can make statistics say pretty much anything you want to. But I think there's some validity in this. They said church people, okay, all of us, 21% of all church people play the lotto. Okay? I know it's true because there was a gal there yesterday that uh, they asked who had a lotto ticket, and she was the first one jumped up and got, gave it, and she was in a conference with, you know. 20% of church people pray for others to come to know Jesus. More people in church play the lotto than pray for the lost according to that statistic. That, that struck me as, as sad, and yet God has called us as his messengers to, to share. And we don't want to be the ones who stand in the way. I don't want to hamper the harvest by being the one who stands in the way of God's compassion being poured out on other people. I want to be the messenger and the emissary. We prevent the shower in God's mercy when we resent his compassion. When we receive his confrontation and when we require his correction, let's don't be those people. Let's repent of our resentment. Let's ask God to enlarge our heart for the lost and to give us grace, give us his heart for the, the lost people. So I'm going to ask you to do is this. I'm going to ask you to take a minute. I want you to think of one 
person, unsaved person, that, that you'll be willing to pray for and write it down. One unsaved person. The name of an unsaved person. That you know that you will pray that God would work in their heart and draw them to himself and, and bring about new life in that person and that God would, if by his grace, would use you in the process. Okay, I can see your, if you didn't write it down, hopefully you got it in your brain, okay? And then I want you to do this. I want you to think, what's one thing, what's one step I'll do? What's one step I'll take to... to Make uh, one baby step that I'm going to make. This is not Dave Ramsey. We're at one, one step that you're going to take to reach out to that person or to engage that person. Maybe it's just stopping by their desk or their office cubicle and saying, hi. Maybe it's just calling them on the phone and say, yeah, I was just thinking about you, so what, what's going on in your life? Maybe it's stopping by their locker in the hallway and just asking them, how's their day? Okay? What's interesting is, is we close every service with breaking bread. A reminder of God's mercy on us. And I pray that as we break this bread, which is a symbol of his body broken, and drink this cup, which is a symbol of his blood shed for us, that we would say, you know, man, I'm so blessed. I'm forgiven. And uh, there's nobody on earth that I wouldn't want to be in heaven. You think about Elizabeth Elliot? She went back and lived with the very people that killed her husband so that they would not go to hell because that's what they went there in the first place for. That's God. And you know, God can do that in our hearts too. So if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you. Take a moment or two and just... Do some business with God and search your heart and confess your sin and, and just get right with him. And then as you feel led, come up and take the bread and the cup. There's some in the back too. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, you know, that what was eating Jonah, his irritation at the thought of some pagan, perverted Ninevites coming to faith in Jesus would not be what keeps us from sharing the message of Christ. God, give us as a church, increase our temperature in sharing the good news because we've been blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when Jonah was thrown into the sea, the waters became calm. And uh, Steve mentioned the, the parallel to, to Jesus and how Jesus slept peacefully in the bottom of the boat and I think about that story and how uh, it also points us to another aspect that Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's wrath uh, so that we could have peace with God. And you know, as we take the, the bread and the cup, just let's remember what Jesus has, has done for us so that we could have right relationship with him.